I think Gemini is is very exciting. It's a multimodal model. If you take a look at some of the demo videos, it interleaves text, image, video reasoning, audio. And one of the exciting aspects is the multimodality. And the other aspect seems to be that the latency is pretty fast. I think what's exciting to me is not necessarily whether it completely outperforms GPT-4. Right now, what I've seen is it seems to have like some incremental improvement, but not necessarily like a huge step change. If you think about it, RAG is basically prompt engineering because you're basically figuring out a way to put context into the prompt. It's just a programmatic way of prompt engineering. Uh, if we think RAG will get better than that, we could see that as a way of prompt engineering. It's a way of prompting so that you actually get back some context. This is Louis-François for the What's AI podcast, and in this episode, I receive Jerry Liu, co-founder and CEO of Lama Index. Lama Index is in the center of the RAG industry, which stands for Retrieval Augmented Generation, basically combining large language models with your own data. In this interview, we talk a lot about RAG and LLMs. Jerry shares a lot of really applicable insights on how to improve your current RAG or LLM system. I'm sure you'll take out a lot from this episode. If you enjoy it, please don't forget to share it with friends and leave a five-star review or a like, depending on where you are listening this episode. Let's dive right into it. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Jerry. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Llama Index. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Llama Index is a data framework and platform to help you build LM applications over your data. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for the invite. Of course, thanks Thanks for you to be here. And before we, we get into Llama Index and all the cool topics, could you share a bit more about when and how did you get into the AI space? Yeah, so I've basically been in the AI space for most of my working career. Um, so I graduated in 2017. At the time, I was playing around with the initial iterations of generative models. At the time, it was around GANs, um, so generative adversarial networks, for those listeners that are aware. Um, at the time, they were pretty basic. And I remember being really wowed by the fact that, you know, you could basically generate bedrooms um, or, or just these 64 by 64 renditions of bedrooms using these very basic models. And so I did some basic deep learning research to try to train some of our own GANs, extended it to a 3D setting. And that kind of got me into the whole AI space as a, um, as a whole, right? And it's very broad. There's the application like ML engineering space. Um, there's the data science aspects, there's pure ML research. And of course, there's kind of like the ML ops like tooling to support the, the practitioners. Um, so I've kind of uh, dipped my toes in pretty much uh, all three of these spaces throughout my working experiences. Um, but I didn't actually play around with LLMs until around this time last year, back in October of 2022, when I was just starting to dabble around with the GPT-3 API to explore the ca uh, capabilities. Um, I understood how generative models worked from the theoretical, like kind of conceptual side of things, but I hadn't really explored the full application potential. And so at the time, I was just trying to hack around on some applications uh, using GPT-3. And that's when I discovered the need to basically have some tooling and abstractions to build LLM apps uh, on my own data. I was trying to figure out how to feed uh, my own data into, uh, into um, like GPT-3. And that's basically what kind of kicked off the whole inspiration for this project. And going back a little, why did you choose to directly go into the industry, for example, after your degree, instead of like master's, PhD, or do AI research, like productizing instead of research? That's a good question. I don't think... 
Uh, anyone's actually asked me that. Uh, and, and to be honest, I think I actually did consider going back to uh, grad school for kind of like a master's PhD. I'm a bit of a weird case where like, honestly, most people, like if you uh, are really into research, a lot of people around that time uh, started applying to these like residency programs and then uh, going to PhDs at these different grad schools. Um, whereas like if you kind of knew you didn't actually want to do research, you stayed mostly in, in engineering. So you're an ML engineer or working in an applied field. I liked both. Um, so actually, I applied to the residency program. I, I was an Uber AI resident from 2018 to 2019. That's actually how I met my current co-founder, uh, Simon. So I did research um, for about a year, and then that extended to two years under uh, Raquel, who now heads Wabi, but was the head of research at Uber uh, R&D in Toronto, um, working on self-driving cars. And so I did have like a solid stint where I worked on deep learning research, and I was deciding whether or not I want to continue this to grad school. Um, but at the same time, I think the other direction pulling me back is I fundamentally really enjoy hacking on things um, and thinking about how to build products. And so that, I mean, you can kind of see flavors of that and what we do today, but, you know, that also motivated me to join uh, an ML, ML ops startup after my research. Yeah, I guess you love the more applied way of learning as well. And just like, yeah, you basically learn to apply, I guess, just like I do. And so you mentioned GANs and you, I'm sure you understand the, the, the basics well. I will have like two sides of the questions on first, uh, for example, for working with large language models and the recent AI systems, what is your thought on the necessity or utility of understanding how transformers work? And the second part is, is it important to understand also the basics? Like you mentioned GANs, but also the, the other like more basic neural networks and math behind the models. Do you think this is necessary? Do, is it useful? Is it useless? I think it's kind of like understanding uh, computer architecture. I don't think anybody really understands how a computer works <laughs> under the hood unless you majored in, uh, got a PhD in electrical engineering, right? And you directly work on kind of like the, the transistors. Um, I think um, people are going to understand these things at different levels of abstraction. And there is basically infinite depth in ML. I actually think even if you look at the subset of PhD researchers in machine learning, I don't think any of them fully understand uh, or all of them fully understand the theoretical math, right? Unless you're directly working in theoretical ML. Mm. Um, so I, I do think it's just impossible for everyone to understand everything. Um, I think realistically, though, um, I would say if you're, for instance, like an AI engineer working on applied LLMs, um, you do kind of need to have the user experience of playing around with stuff like ChatGPT, understand the overall uh, application frameworks of, for instance, retrieval augmented generation agents, like what, what, what like types of application use cases are emerging from these models, even if you don't like um, fully grok the models themselves. And I think you also need to uh, like kind of learn some best practices. We can talk about this too, but like, I do think um, most AI engineers these days, at least probably should have an understanding of evaluation and how to really benchmark things against a data set for stochastic systems, um, at least right now. And who knows what will happen when they get better. Um, and of course, like once you get, if you really want to get deeper into AI so that you can try fine tuning models, uh, so that you can try building your own models to kind of learn that additional layer, then yeah, I think learning some of the basics around, you know, how these models work, um, how, you know, basic kind of like math stats, like math propagation, those things are all helpful. And I wanted to, to dive into that a bit later in the podcast, but while we are talking about this, um, what would be right now or in the near future? the useful tech stack to learn to get into the field, for example, someone that is in, in another field or, or currently like a college student or, or whatever, and they don't have a programming or any background whatsoever in, in artificial intelligence related space. 
but they will they are super intrigued by LLMs and they want to build like an app or they want to work in this field. What would be your recommendation on what they should learn and how would you recommend them to to learn this? Yeah, so I'm kind of starting off with the assumption that uh, that this uh, person at least kind of knows how to program because if you don't know how to program, there's like a different flow. Um, but if you at least somewhat know how to program, whether in Python or TypeScript or, or Java even, right? Um, you can at least learn um, kind of the the basics of uh, and and so what what are the basics? One is uh, choose a large language model. Um, the easiest to start off with is probably OpenAI, um, so that you can just you know get an API key and you can start like using it. Uh, feed in some input, get back some output. Allocate a budget for yourself so you don't like blow the monthly limit, right? Like so you don't accidentally use GPT four like a and and rack up a huge bill. Um, and then the next step is to. Um, pick a data source, um, or, or basically pick a use case actually, but for a data source, uh, figure out what you actually want to do. Is it like you want to answer questions over your documents, over your uh, class notes, over your database? Um, is it that you want to actually kind of send messages, right, or build a personalized chatbot with conversation memory? Uh, and from there, learn some of the basic concepts of RAG, uh, so retrieval augmented generation, um, as well as agents, as well as like um, how these general models work. Um, and so those for, for those, like I would basically, you know, recommend a framework like like Llama Index. We have a bunch of educational resources on this for both uh, beginner to advanced users. Um, and, and then for vector databases or, or just like storage systems in general, I think that stuff comes into play if you actually have um, like more data requirements. Right. And obviously that's kind of at the core of what we do. But just like practically speaking, if you find yourself wanting to try to understand like a large corpus of data, then you should pick like a storage tool, like a vector database. These days, there's a lot of vector databases out there. Mm. Uh, so you have a lot of choices. Um, you can probably pick one to start with. Or honestly, for Llama Index, you can just use our very simple in-memory one that's not scalable, but just works out of the box. Um, so you can try that too if you want. I definitely want to talk about RAG, as you mentioned. But first, maybe it would be most useful to to dive a bit more into Lama Index, just because I think it's a, an amazing tool. And I, I would like to demystify a bit for the people that don't know much about it or like are just unsure of if if the, if they should be using Lama Index or Langchain or, or their own thing or whatever. Um, so first, could you share, in your personal opinion, when should one use Lama Index and who should be using it? Is it like, the, is it for programmers or for like, who, who is it for and when should we, should we use it? Yeah, definitely. So Llama Index is a developer tool. So it's oriented towards at least programmers right now, um, at least, and, and we'll kind of uh, maybe see what to do in the future. Um, but it's basically at a very basic level, it's a Python package as well as a TypeScript package. Uh, so you, you know, you pip install or npm install package. And the main goal that we have right now is to provide the tools to make it easier for developers to build LLM applications over your data. Um, and so if you have some data source uh, and you want to build some sort of knowledge augmented um, chatbot over it um, so that you can ask questions over your data, get back answers, um, you can use Llama Index. Uh, Llama Index is very broad right now. And so basically any LLM application you want to build, you can basically build with Llama Index, right? Um, the main reason I say kind of LLM applications of your data is that's kind of been a core focus of, of what, what we, um, uh, of the company basically for, for the past few months. Um, so basically this includes stuff like RAG, like building, um, some sort of chatbot over your data. This includes stuff like structured data extraction. This includes like talking to your SQL database. If you want to run like structured analytics, 
these are pretty popular use cases within the enterprise. Uh, if you want to do summarization, you can also build uh, random cool stuff like like just uh, agent simulations, for instance, or kind of like auto GPT like experiences where you can you know have a conversation with with uh, with this like chatbot and and kind of maintain conversation history. Um, we haven't invested as many efforts there in terms of like first class, like in, in terms of just like higher level abstractions, but you can certainly build it. Um, and so maybe one one thing people think about is when to use Llama Index or just call the OpenAI API yourself yeah. or write your own tooling. Um, it really depends on how much time you have. Um, and I think time time is kind of like a, a valuable commodity these days. Like I think um, it just requires more boilerplate for you to set up a lot of these abstractions and make them robust uh, versus using some of our stuff. And we also have a lot of educational materials right uh, within our modules to show when to use certain modules for which use cases for both like simple to advanced um, applications. Could you quickly share either the, the differences or your advantages compared to, for instance, Langchain or uh, yeah, training from scratch, uh, not training, but building it from scratch, as you, as you said. And lastly, the recent uh, OpenAI assistance, like when when should one use Lamindex or what's the, the particularity or advantage of, of using Lamindex instead of all of those? Yeah, I, I think I touched briefly on the yeah. building your own from scratch. Um, and and as to differences between Lamindex and Langchain, this is a very popular question. Um, I think, yeah. you know, we're both frameworks. Uh, at the end of the day, you can basically build whatever you want in either framework. Um, I would say um, Langchain has invested a bit more broadly in just a variety of different things. I think we've been uh, pretty focused specifically on tooling abstractions for building kind of uh, stuff around your data. And one of the most popular frameworks is probably RAG. And the way we think about a lot of these abstractions is how are they just extensions on top of RAG to basically uh, provide even more advanced like search analytics over your data. So this um, you know includes chatbots. Um, when we think about agents, we typically think about it in the data analysis use case. And so we try to make our abstractions both like very customizable for the advanced user, but also very out of the box and easy to use for the more beginner user. And so that's kind of our main focus um, and, and um, how we think about the differences there. As for the assistance API from OpenAI, um, yeah, it's it's good. I mean, I think they've released a lot of features during Dev Day, uh, which I'm sure you might ask me more about in, in just a bit. But on the assistance API specifically, um, what it is, right, for listeners is it's basically like a hosted agent-like experience that's capable of in-house retrieval uh, and code interpreter, as well as function calling for any tools that you pass in. I actually think it's pretty complimentary because in the end, what we really want to focus on is really good search retrieval experiences over your data. And we we actually have an assistance API wrapper that's an agent, and we demonstrate that you should really just use Llama Index um, RAG pipelines as tools within this assistance API. So to have the assistance API do function calling on top of stuff that you built with Llama Index. So use Llama Index for, to, for instance, index your data, right? your diverse data corpuses. Um, their own retrieval API right now is quite basic. I would not recommend it for anything more than a toy data uh, use case. And so, um, you know, use the capabilities that we have to offer over your data, plug it into the assistance API, the agent, and, and see what happens. I assume another advantage is also that you can, yes, use OpenAI APIs to, to do whatever, but also it crashes sometimes and even often. And so you can definitely easily, not easily, but you can, like, if if your query to the OpenAI API crashes, you can also ask another language model, either your own or like Claude or or, or whichever. So I, I guess that's also 
quite beneficial from using something external as OpenAI as Lamandex. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so in, in general, there, there's um, the broader point about uh, what's the point of Lamandex if OpenAI you know, is releasing all yeah. this stuff. Uh, and so just to address that, basically, as you said, um, you know, like there, the space is very competitive. Uh, Gemini uh, just released as of the time of this recording. Right. Yeah. And so uh, and then, of course, there's a lot of competition on the open source space as well. And so what we've seen from a lot of users is they want choice and they want uh, good trade-offs. And so they want to have, you know, not have vendor lock-in so that they can pick and choose, you know, maybe plug in some open source model with OpenAI for different use cases. Um, and frameworks allow you to basically just do that very easily um, and save you time in actually trying out these different abstractions. You mentioned Gemini, and I actually wanted to also... Uh talk with you about that because you you just you recently posted something about Gemini sharing insights and and your thoughts I would love to okay. to know uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on Gemini do you think it, this is a big thing or it's it, it won't even compete with GPT-4 I've seen that they haven't even released the, the like the bigger model turbo or I don't remember the name but they haven't released the bigger model yet so yeah what, what are your thoughts on on Gemini Yeah, so just for some quick context, I know about as much as you do because yeah. my tweet was literally just from reading the blog post. Um, but I think Gemini, uh, in principle, from reading the blog post, is is very exciting. Um, it's a multimodal model uh, from from what they release. Mm. If you take a look at some of the demo videos, it interleaves text, uh, image, video reasoning, audio, and well, one of the exciting aspects is the multimodality, and the other aspect seems to be that the latency is pretty fast. Um, I think what's exciting to me is not necessarily um, whether it, it completely outperforms GPT-4. Um, right now, what I've seen is it seems to have like some incremental improvement, but not necessarily like a huge step change yeah. uh, on, on kind of like the pure text-based reasoning um, aspects. What's exciting to me is making multimodal uh, stuff practical and yeah. easy to use. Um, these days, when you build multimodal apps, you stitch together a bunch of very disparate components that are not end-to-end -end optimized. You stitch together like an LLM, like a GPT, You add like a text-to-speech service, right? Um, and then a speech-to-text service. Uh, and then you you use that to try to like bounce conversations back and forth. Um, a big issue in a lot of these applications, um, not just audio, but also image and video, is latency and speed and actually making sure you have some good end-to-end -end pipeline. Mm. So I think if uh, Gemini can actually be a universal model that can process and crunch a lot of data very quickly, I think it has a lot of exciting potential for basically um, kind of uh, more advanced Um, RAG use cases, right? And and I think that's something that we're pretty excited about, uh, yeah. but also, you know, in general, agentic use cases too. So RAG use cases include stuff like being able to crunch like charts, tables within a document, um, being able to process websites and do structured data extraction better than just pure text processing. Um, we're also excited about, for instance, like being able to kind of do some sort of augmented sensor captioning, like given a video, you can just like generate a bunch of uh, text, right? And have a conversation, um, but also kind of have a, like just um, uh, also be able to like index your own internal knowledge corpus. And so the stuff you index is not just text data, but also like image, video, audio data, mm -hmm. and those things. Um, I do think this will probably become a bigger piece in the future. So far, what we've seen with, um, I think open source models and, and GPT-4V have already made a decent amount of advancements in this space, uh, but there's still some like gaps to make this like fully applicable in, in, in the production side. Yeah. And right now, how do you deal with multimodalities and like images, tables, PDFs, everything? How do you, how do you deal with that at, at Lama Index? 
So pre-multimodal models, um, the multimodal piece we're still exploring, actually. And so that's kind of a work in progress. And, and Gemini will help accelerate some of that, too. Um, the, the main issue, by the way, with uh, playing around with current models as of the time of this recording is a lot of them are either um, a little slow to use or they're heavily rate limited, like, mm. like GPT-4B. Um, so generally speaking, processing a complex document is quite interesting to us. Um, and we've actually posted a lot about this in the past. How do you, for instance, process like uh, an embedded table within a PDF? Like if you have a SEC 10K filing, an archive research paper, um, any sort of legal brief, like you have a bunch of like charts, tables, right? And, and you want to somehow index that all text. Um, and so we have a lot of abstractions within Llama index that basically allow you to kind of like hierarchically summarize and model this, um, this entire document, not just as like a flat list of text chunks, but actually kind of like a document graph. Um, so you have an entire graph of like node objects that link to other node objects. And when you do retrieval, you don't do retrieval just on like a flat top K of like the document text chunks. Um, you actually uh, do retrieval over this document graph. Um, and, and this allows you to basically query and understand different objects representations within um, this data. So for instance, for tables, you don't necessarily need a uh, 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 image screenshot of it, you could use like a text parser, right? And, and then kind of clean that up or model it like a CSV or a data frame. Um, for charts, it's a little bit more tricky. There's a lot of like OCR models right now on, on charts uh, and, and some of them are, are pretty interesting, but I think there's still a gap in really understanding some of the complex stuff. Um, and so maybe this is something that multimodal models will help with. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, we are also facing lots of challenge with like the different PDFs. I guess that's a, an ongoing problem for, for as long as PDFs exist. But uh, yeah, really cool. I, I I definitely hope Gemini will, will help for that or just other multimodal models. Would you have any tips for companies or individuals to ensure that they have good documentation and like good communication skills? I feel like our documentation has historically been not that great. A lot of this honestly was from our VP of developer relations, uh, Lori. And so he basically came in and revamped the documentation. Actually, um, you know, again, as of the time of this recording, we're going through like another revamp to try to, you know, add more resources. We've added more stuff and, and to try to rearrange some of the sections to make it a bit more clear. Um, I think in general, I probably kind of, um, think about the audience. Um, and I think for us, what, like, again, this is from the context that the documentation has historically uh, been not great, right? And so I think what the audience that we really tried to cater to is the fact that for the vast majority of uh, developers, they're still onboarding onto the concepts. And so they, they want to see the documentation as an mm -hmm. educational resource uh, that supports them throughout their developer journey. Um, I, for instance, am not the target user of uh, the first like 70% of the documentation. Um, because I already know the modules, the abstractions, I would go straight into the API reference, um, as well as like some of the module guides, just like yeah. copy and paste reference code. But for the vast majority of users, we wanted to frame the documentation such like uh, such that it was a journey from, you know, your beginner um, in RAG, you're just starting out, you go through the quick start, to you're actually trying to build like a full stack RAG application. What are the things that you try to set up? Um, oh, here's agents, like, how do you think about that? And how does that like factor into this experience? So now you're trying to optimize this entire mm -hmm. system. What are strategies, tips and tricks you can do that? And so I think that really did help a lot because it basically made it so that the documentation was a lot more accessible so that you could just read through top to bottom. So I assume it's just like, in my case, creating videos, you need a, a good storyline. And even if you are just explaining something, 
it follows the story from an introduction to like development and etc. So it's kind of the same thing to have better documentation. Right, exactly. I think that's a key principle. Nice. That's I, I think that's something I, I've never heard about documenting your code. <laughs> it's it's really cool. And I, I hope to see that more in the future for other people. Yeah, and, and for the audience, by the way, like I, you know, we're we're always improving it. I actually don't think the documentation is perfect. There's definitely things that are missing or, or could be improved. So if you have feedback, please let us know. Perfect. And now, yeah, I, I'd love to dive more into the, the retrieval augmented generation since that's a big part of, of what you're doing. And first, um you, you already explained what, what it was, but could you share your insights on why is this so hyped and and so popular like why do everyone wants to do retrieval augmented generation instead of other alternatives just for example as uh, fine-tuning where you retrain on your personal you retrain a, a powerful model on your personal data why why is rags so popular now i think that's a good question i think um First, maybe I'll explain what retrieval augmented generation is, um, and then I'll, ta I'll ta talk a little bit about why um, it's probably the main enterprise use case these days, um, yeah. and, and there's probably a reason for that. So what is retrieval augmented generation, um, or RAG for short? So RAG basically means that you fix the model. The model doesn't change. Um, you're not training it anymore. It's already pre-trained. You're just using the OpenAI API out of the box, or Llama 2, or whatever. Um, and then you take some data corpus, right? And RAG is just a way you combine the two. So the way it works is you load in some data from your data corpus. It could be PDFs, databases, uh, CSV files. Uh, okay, actually not CSV files, forget about that. Uh, but like uh, some sort of like semi-structured, unstructured data. Um, and then you want to index it. And typically you index it into a vector database. So you take in some of these documents, chunk it up, embed them, put them into a vector database. Um, and then now that the data is in your storage system, uh, you can basically build this uh, RAG pipeline where given a user query, you first retrieve the relevant context from the vector database um, and vector databases expose an endpoint where you can basically fetch the most similar documents given a user query. And then you take this like text and then you stuff it into the prompt. So, you know, just imagine a giant text string. There's some room in the middle. You take all that text and just dump the, dump the documents as plain text into the input prompt. And this is the thing that you use to basically uh, uh, generate an answer. So the prompt template looks something like, you know, here's some context, dump the context in, here's the question, dump the question in, and then you get the answer. Um, that's RAG. Um, and, and you can honestly replicate this experience by just opening up ChatGPT in your browser and just taking some random web page or article that you see and copying, pasting a text, put in a ChatGPT and ask it to summarize stuff for you, right? For anyone using ChatGPT, like people do this all the time. That's basically a rag, which is automated, um, mm -hmm. right, in, in some sort of like systematic setting. And so um, why is this so popular? Um, one, because it's a core use case for search and retrieval. I think the time, um, so, so one, it's a very valuable use case. I think we've talked to a lot of companies. A lot of them see a lot of value in being able to extract insights from their kind of unstructured data yeah. in a performant, fast, and cheap way. Um, two, it's really easy to set up. Um, in Lamadex, you can get something working, the basics in five lines of code, right? You don't need a training data set. You don't need human annotators. You actually don't even need to wait 30 minutes. You can basically get the setup immediately. Um, a, a third part is that uh, other use cases that are cool and exciting um, work less well, 
So agents are cool and exciting. There was a lot of cool stuff around agents. In fact, there was a lot of hype around agents back in April and May. Um, but as people started playing around with it, they realized that there's a lot of use cases that, that, that they weren't quite able to solve. Um, right. And, and so I'm sure people get more excited about agents. We're seeing people branch out from RAG into agent-like stuff, um, but just in slightly more limited fashion. Um, and as these models get better, like we'll see kind of like step changes in, in capabilities of agents. Um, but for right now, RAG strikes a nice balance between it solves the use case, it's easy to set up, and, and also it, it works like decently well. Yeah, that, and it also reduces hallucinations compared to uh, fi fine-tuning. This is just a quick interruption to remind you to like or leave a five-star review depending on where you are watching this episode from. It helps the channel a lot, and it's an amazing way to show me if you are enjoying this episode or not. Thank you for watching, and I will let you enjoy the rest of the episode. Well, could, could you share a bit more on when would you use a fine-tuning of, of a model rather than, than RAG or vice versa? Right, so so now the, the RAG versus uh, fine-tuning um, debate. Um, I think for the vast majority of developers, if you have some knowledge corpus that you want to understand um, and, and you want to basically ask questions over in a search or retrieval setting, you should do RAG. Um, I think fine-tuning um, has the theoretical, the conceptual capability to do everything that RAG does. Um, because if you think about it, like, you know, ChatGPT itself is trained over some corpus of data. You ask it about stuff, it'll be able to, you know, regurgitate things and, mm. and, 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 you know, it, it can answer questions for you, right? Um, it's just practically speaking, there's no magical endpoint right now where you can just fine-tune something and it magically learns uh, over your data. Um, most fine-tuning tutorials, if you look on the web, we actually have some fine-tuning abstractions are either very incremental um, or kind of for limited use cases. And so you can't just like just run this random process that will fine-tune in the background and just automatically memorize every new piece of information that you give it. Um, so that's one. It's just like the, the kind of UX is not there. Um, and so fine-tuning takes more time, it's hard to set up, uh, and, and also has more incremental use mm -hmm. cases. Um, that said, I think Fine-tuning will just generally do things that RAG um, can't do because it can just um, do some sort of like overall training over the entire data set. This includes like better adherence to any sort of system prompts that you set up. So if you really want to re like un RLHF the model and then re RLHF it with like kind of uh, kind of your own custom instructions, that would be a way to do it. So that could acts more consistently according to your guidelines. Um, you can get it to, for instance, output stuff in certain styles, those types of things. Um, but we actually, we have some basic support for fine-tuning in Llama Index. Um, for instance, we have tutorials on fine-tuning Llama, Llama 2 or other models for use cases like structured data extraction, text-to-SQL, those things. Um, we also have used fine-tuning to fine-tune uh, embeddings uh, for a better retrieval performance. Um, that's actually another aspect that uh, people oftentimes miss is that you, can, you should actually probably fine-tune the embedding model um, once you really start to optimize these systems. Um, so they're definitely complementary. Um, it's possible that fine tuning replaces some parts of RAG in the future. We just don't see that yet. Yeah, you can both optimize the the indexing part of your data as well as the the, the querying part. Uh, could you share a bit more on how what what's the basic of of both and first how much you can improve, but also how you can improve them? So yeah, the way RAG works um, again is you you know, index some data um, and add, uh, what does indexing mean? It means, you know, you take each document that you're putting into a vector database and then you add, uh, you embed it, right? So you feed it to an embedding model and you get back an embedding. 
this embedding is basically the, the kind of index on top of this data. Um, and this serves as the thing that you do to do or that you use to do some sort of like top K lookup, right? And so for this embedding, um, you can fine tune the model to output better embeddings. Um, with a pre-trained model, like you um, are using like a pre-trained hugging face model, for instance, um, they're typically pre-trained on large amounts of data, but not necessarily specific to your domain. So given the types of questions that you want to ask, if it's very domain specific, um, that, that embedding might not actually be optimized so that the relevant context is retrieved for the question you want to ask. So you can actually try fine tuning this embedding model. There's a variety of ways you can do it. One is if you have the model weights, right? If it's just like a hugging face model, you can basically download it, fine tune it yourself if you know how to write PyTorch. Um, there's also services out there, right, that will kind of do this for you. Um, and lot, like we have some abstractions here that try to make it also pretty easy for you to use these different services. Um, this includes, um, actually, wait, sorry, let me let me scratch that. I I can't think of any off the top of my head that that do pure embedding fine tuning. I'm sure they exist. Uh, I just I just can't um, uh, guarantee that the companies I'm going to say are going to be correct. Um, but the, the other thing you can do, um, and, and this is also a conceptual thing that, that's pretty interesting, is you can basically take an existing embedding, right? So you don't need to fine tune the base model. You can take an existing embedding and it can be generated by a black box, like OpenAI, Ada. Um, and then you fine tune a transform on top of this embedding, right? To basically uh, transform this embedding representation into another embedding that's, that better models your specific data. So it could be a linear transform. It could be a neural net. Um, but you, you can basically fine tune a, an additional adapter model on top of the base model, right? And um, there's kind of trade-offs complexities if you fine tune this on the document side versus the query side. Um, but you know we, we actually have some basic uh, capabilities in Lamindex to let you do that. And we also encourage users to try doing that themselves. But it's a pretty interesting principle because it's like you can take a frozen model and just fine tune some transform layer on top of it to basically uh, adapt uh, to your data domain a little bit more. Um, on the LLM fine tuning side, I think some core use cases we've seen that we found pretty interesting is you take a weaker model. So for instance, a cheaper but weaker model like, like a Llama 2, and you try fine tuning it to better output stuff like structured outputs. Um, a lot of RAG use cases we've seen, a lot of users desire kind of like outputting stuff in JSON format. And the best models for outputting stuff in JSON format right now are is like GPT-4. Um, so if you're able to fine tune a smaller model to better obey this type of task, um, then you can basically use a smaller, cheaper model. Um, and so we've um, that that's like a use case that we're pretty interested in. Uh, and then some some other ones include like being able to just generally distill um, kind of uh, the prompt and instruction following uh, from a more powerful model like GPT-4 into a smaller model. Hmm. And regarding the the other sides of the the RAG system, for example, chunking, like you need to divide your data or do you? Um, so what, what's, what's the importance of chunking size and also this, the chunking strategy that, that you are, that you want to take? How, how do you make this? How do you select which strategies, strategy to use and what size each chunks should have? That's a good question. Um, I think overall, people don't think enough about the data pipeline for RAG um, because they use some very standard chunking strategy, and this turns out to be suboptimal, and that's actually why their, their RAG pipeline is failing. Um, the, the, the few variables or parameters you have to think about when you build a chunking strategy is one, the quality of your file parser. 
So how how well are you actually parsing out text from from the PDF, right? Let's just say a PDF as an example. There's different types of uh, PDF parsers available. Some are better than others. Um, some are uh, uh, better or worse at extracting more complex things like you know two column format, like headers, tables, those things. Um, the next step is chunking. So um, how do you actually split up the text? Oh, by the way, first of all, what, why do you actually need to chunk things? And the reason is to just reduce a bigger document into smaller bite-sized context, mm. um, right? Uh, so that one, it doesn't overflow the context window when you do retrieval. Um, two is it reduces the number of tokens that you use and as a result reduces uh, cost uh, and also reduces the speed, the time it takes to actually generate a response. Um, and so... But yeah, the way you the the way you chunk the documents um, does impact retrieval performance quite a bit. Um, I think generally with kind of like flat chunking, um, you you kind of see like a U shaped curve uh, in terms of error rate. So if the the chunk sizes are too small, you don't actually return enough context uh, so that um, you know you can't actually properly answer the question at hand. If the chunk sizes are too big, you start running into attention loss in the middle problems as well as like obviously increases in cost and speed. Like sometimes the relevant context is just lost in the middle of a very big chunk. And so the LM doesn't quite understand what's going on. Um, and so I, I do think the world will probably move in the direction of bigger and bigger chunk sizes as these models get better. But for now, this is something you have to tune. Um, yeah, and, and the other part here is just like, um, the something we typically cover in like the advanced retrieval section is like the um, whole idea of just arbitrarily splitting text by sentences, paragraphs, uh, whatever, it's pretty arbitrary. Um, and so sometimes you just inadvertently start splitting context down the middle, like you might have a relevant section. And because you pre-split it, the relevant section is now cut in two. And so unless both of those chunks are retrieved, you're not going to have all the context you need to answer a question. Mm. Um, so it's because it's kind of arbitrary. Um, I think there's definitely improvements to be made on like, how do you better chunk and process these things? instead of just doing it by you know every sentence paragraph or by a fixed chunk size. That's something we're actively exploring. And what's the importance of, of data quality inside those chunks? Do you have any techniques or to, to find like irrelevant chunks or are you curating them or like, be, because for example, I, I assume a lot of companies will build RAG systems based on their internal documentation and whatever they have, but lots of things are obsolete or like older versions and or just it, it if your your chunking is a bit weird it may have the the last sentence embedded which is completely use, useless so how do you curate or improve the the chunks do you do do you have any insights on post processing or do you do anything to improve that yeah i i think that's that's a good question and and this gets like relatively uh deep and and honestly like there, there's some thoughts off, off the top of my head but this is also something just uh you know uh, transparently we're like uh, actively working yeah. on to try to understand ourselves um there's pieces both on the injection as well as the retrieval side that you can do to try to actually improve uh the final quality of the context that's retrieved um so that you, your lm has access to like the most precise relevant information um, on the injection side, right, you do need to spend some time um, picking like a good uh, PDF parser. Um, and so uh, some, uh, for instance, like like unstructured is actually pretty good, I think, for being able to partition out like tables and charts so you can do stuff with it later. Um, and, and also some PDF parsers are, are pretty bad in that they just like, um, you know, just the, you can tell like the, the text itself is just like very messily formatted. Um, 
The other piece is I would probably spend just you know some basic effort setting up an evaluation benchmark and seeing which chunk sizes um, actually lead to the best generation performance, right? Um, if, uh, for instance, um, you know your your kind of chunk size is a parameter that you can tune. Um, in terms of overall splitting strategies, there's different splitting strategies. There's like sentence splitting, paragraph splitting. If you can, I try to preserve like sections uh, so that like contiguous sections aren't split in half. So for instance, if you're splitting like a markdown file, it makes more sense for you to like keep a contiguous section versus just like have some overlap between two sections. Um, and we have actually a markdown text splitter that tries to preserve that to the best of our ability. Um, and then the other piece here is um, th there's more kind of like data improvements you can add on top of the chunks themselves. Um, and actually there's a few that I'll talk about. One is metadata. Um, this is actually really important because if you just have the raw text chunk, it's not contextualized. Um, the, the embedding of that text chunk or the LLM will not really know where this text chunk falls in relation to anything else that's retrieved. Even adding stuff like the file name, a short summary, or a kind of like a higher level uh, abstract, like a abstractive summary of like what this thing is about uh, can help retrieval, uh, metadata filtering, and a variety of other things. Um, there's more stuff here too, um, but th this is just like, you know, kind of some, some aspects that users consider on the, on the injection side. Um, on the retrieval side, I would typically say, you know, there are the, a lot of this draws from traditional retrieval practices of how do you retrieve the most relevant context given the query. Mm. Um, part of this, again, is the data quality that we just talked about. The other is the algorithm that you have. Um, typically, for most uh, production retrieval pipelines that we've seen, you know, even independent of the LLM, you have some like two stage pass where you first do some sort of like top K retrieval via embeddings. And then the second stage is you might want to do some re-ranking, right? And so fusion between like different retrieve results. Um, and even actually before that, before you actually launch a query, you might want to do some sort of like query rewriting or, or decomposition to basically decompose a complex question into smaller ones. Um, a general reference advanced architecture, right? Like I'm, I'm not sure if this is the most general form available, but certainly uh, I have like decent confidence. I'll probably do better than the basic stuff is start off with a query. Um, decompose it into subqueries if you can over like different tools. Um, and so, you know, Lamadex does uh, uh, have like a bunch of abstractions to help you do that. Um, decompose into subqueries. Now, for each underlying um, like smaller query, um, execute it against uh, some sort of re retriever. And you can have, uh, for instance, like multiple retrievers, like one doing hybrid search, one doing keyword search. Um, and it's actually okay. It's called like ensemble retrieval, uh, right? So you have a bunch of Canada chunks. And then this is your first stage pass. So all of a sudden you have a bunch of like chunks, you know, all from like different retrievers. Some of them might be duplicates. And then you do like re-ranking filtering. Um, that's like the second stage piece where you actually try to filter out for the most relevant ones. Mm -hmm. This is typically using a more powerful model than like uh, just pure uh, pure embedding model. Yeah, yeah um, Cohere, for instance, has like a re-ranker. Um, you can use like the LLM itself to re-rank stuff. You can use a cross-encoder model. There, there's a variety of these are publicly available. Um, and you finally get back the relevant context they can feed to the link well. Um, so this is just an example architecture, right? But the, these are like general practices that people should think about. Yeah, super interesting. Um, would you have any insights on, for, you mentioned the, dev, the OpenAI Dev Day and now evaluation. So I, I know that in the Dev Day, they, they mentioned that they, they were using Ragas to, to build an evaluation pipe, pipeline. Uh, is it the one you would also recommend or how, how would you evaluate any new RAG system? Yeah, Ragas is great. I actually, I should play around with it more in depth, um, but I, I know the kind of project creators, uh, it's 
uh, you know, it's, it's a great framework. Um, we also have some of our own eval modules, but they're very basic. Um, and so we're trying to look at uh, imp both improving them, but also integrating more with kind of these third-party providers. Mm. Um, I can maybe talk about conceptually um, yeah. what evals consists of, because we also just did a deep learning.ai course with uh, Triera actually on like building and eval evaluating advanced RAG applications, which uh, all of you should check out if you haven't. Um, in terms of evaluating RAG just conceptually, there's a few key areas. One is, you know, you have this question uh, that's asked and then you get this like predicted response. Um, and you also have the retrieve context, right? And if you have like a ground truth answer or a ground truth retrieve context, you can measure both generation as well as retrieval metrics based on how close this reference answer or this predicted answer is to a reference answer, as well as how good the predicted context is to the retrieved like ground truth context. Um, and then if like, it, but then like, you know, that's a basic metric. It's like a correctness metric. Um, and then there's also stuff beyond that. So, you know, you can actually measure the predicted response relative to the context. Uh, this is called like faithfulness. Um, and so if the response actually you found isn't actually generated from the context that's retrieved, this means the LLM is probably hallucinating, right? You can also measure whether or not the response um, wanted here's the guidelines, like structured outputs, those things but also whether the response um, uh, answers the question, right? And this is like relevance. It, it does this actually answer the question at hand? Um, so there's both retrieval as well as like generation metrics that you can define. Mm. Um, and then you can also uh, have like defined metrics in a label free or with label setting. Um, and all of this, by the way, um, for retrieval metrics, uh, you can just compute standard ranking metrics. So stuff like NDCG, MR, that type of stuff. Um, for comparing the quality of generated responses, uh, what a lot of users do is they, they typically use an L1, uh, right? And and so you you uh, use like GPT-4 as a human judge, and you can basically judge whether or not the quality of this response matches the quality of another response. Awesome. Do do you think RAG is the the future of of uh, memory-based language models, or will like GPT-7 be good enough to just first answer all your questions but i i understand that there are some private data so there will necessarily be, uh, be something to do with with this kind of of use case but will will it become like super easy to to quickly fine tune a model what are you think your your thoughts on on the future of llms is it like um basically where i'm trying to go is do you think llms will be, will become powerful and easy enough to use that you will only require them or is it still like just a small part of a bigger product that will all make it work much better yeah i, I mean i think there's a few points in here um and and i think some of these are actually pretty interesting to think about and some of these i don't actually have the right answers for we can mostly speculate and some of these yeah. are things that obviously i probably hope to be more true than others because then you know <laughs> we're building a framework that's kind of like a, a at the orchestration side so um one is whether the current form factor of RAG will, will last. Um, to be honest, like probably not. I mean, in fact, like you, you can already see this evolving. Like, I mean, okay, what, by the way, what is the form factor of RAG? Like, and, and by that assumption, I mean specifically um, taking in a bunch of text, chunking it up using some like naive like text splitter, and then doing like top K retrieval, right? Like part of the things that we've invested in this entire past few months is to move beyond that because that basic stuff like already people find doesn't quite work yeah. uh, as well as uh, people people want. Um, so I think that like just even conceptually, just in terms of the reference like RAG architecture, 
that the best practices around that will probably evolve. Um, as to whether or not a lot of this retrieval um, will get absorbed into the model, I think retrieval itself will probably be absorbed into the model in some way. Like you'll probably start to see one longer context windows, even infinite ones, where um, somehow like basically like the transformers architecture will somehow leverage like top K lookup or a vector database under the hood. This started with stuff like DeepMind Retro uh, last year, um, stuff like the memorizing transformers paper. Um, there will be kind of probably interesting developments on the model space. I don't think, however, that just from my um, own gut intuitions of like the ML research, that this will um, basically just obviate the need to do any sort of indexing storage of data uh, on the developer side, because like just being able to kind of index arbitrary amounts of data is still generally a, a pretty hard problem. Um, and and I think um, like and I think like the just the amount of compute and and kind of like the cost you would need to actually solve this uh, will still probably be quite high. Um, I think there is a world where AI gets better. I think right or, or it gets much better very quickly. Um, I think everyone agrees that AI will get better at you know longer context windows, understanding things much more cheaply and quickly, um, and also the fine tuning aspect. You know, being able to just like fine tune on arbitrary amounts of new data. Um, I think the question is how like compute constrained we are, right? And and kind of like cost constrained. Um, and I think you know it's it's a very exciting feature. Like I, I think um, I personally think I'm probably like somewhere in the middle, like in between people think like you know oh this like GPT four is the peak uh, versus like people think like AGI is going to happen in the next like three months. Um, and part of this <laughs> is also just like practically speaking, I think most people are still having trouble accessing compute. Um, to be honest. Um, and I think also just at the kind of like looking ahead at like future developments of these models, the extremes still seem a little bit far away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do agree. And regarding more, maybe more specifically towards uh, a skill that is currently being required to develop such LLMs based models, uh, approaches, systems, is uh, right now like the, the biggest skills that I believe I'm not hearing a lot about, but prompt engineering, which was extremely po popular like a few months ago, and now I think is way less popular maybe. But do, do you think prompt engineering is there to stay or will uh, LLMs become like better and better to understand the, the, the English language or other languages to just easily use them? Like, is it, is it still a promising skills skill to learn for any future LLM ops, LLM developer or even users? Yeah, I, I think for that, it kind of depends what you mean by prompt engineering. Um, if you define prompt engineering as literally fiddling around with like the F string and, and adding like some random brackets and trying to, you know, like add some uh, special character or like <laughs> stop token or something so that you can generate things. Yeah, I think I think that will probably go away, right? Um, mm. But I actually think the need for prompting in general um, will not, and, and I'm kind of defining this in a very general sense, will either stay the same or, or actually even go go up um, as, as time goes on. What do I mean by this? I mean, if you think about it, RAG is basically prompt engineering because you're basically figuring out a way to put context into the prompt. Yeah. Um, uh, it's just a programmatic way of prompt engineering. Uh, if we think RAG will get better than that, we could see that as a way of prompt engineering. It's a way of prompting so that you actually get back um, some context. Um, any sort of higher level abstractions you build on top of LLMs require some user description of a task. 
And so no matter how much the LLM powered agent under the hood will solve stuff for you, at the high level, you still need to tell it a task to solve and it needs to be able to solve that for you. And so I do think this idea of prompting will probably uh, continue to, to be a need because like even if you're abstracting away a lot of lower level needs to specifically fiddle around with like a specific word, um, and even with stuff like the assistance API, the input interface to that stuff is still English, right? Yeah. And so the way you, the thing you need to do to interact with it is still with English. And so the need for English as an input is still going to exist. Right. But do you think similar question with transformers and the, the, the basics to know, do you think in the user end, they need to understand like prompting and be a better prompter or do they should should they not even look into that and not learn anything about that? Yeah, I I don't think I I actually okay. So I don't think the the prompt engineering um um category itself will necessarily last as like a differentiating like um career title if that makes yeah. sense. But I do think the ability to use AI will continue to continue be it will continue to be a differentiator. Because no matter how high these abstractions are, you need to figure out how to best take advantage of them to help to, to help you, basically, right? Like people that are able to learn how to use ChatGPT effectively get like, you know, 30% efficiency boost versus people that don't know how to use ChatGPT. And so I do think that part will still be important um, and, and might actually be more important as these models get better. Yeah. I've recently spoke with a product manager at Google, and she said that like the skills the, the skills she is now looking for is both is communication but mostly communication with with like language models because you, you mm -hmm. can pretty much do almost anything if you if you are good with using it just like back in the days if you are good with google you can find on stack overflow how to code anything now it's just like mm -hmm. stack overflow right. on steroids yeah, <laughs> so. exactly and i have one last question for you uh, which is one I, I often ask, but uh, now it's it's more personally for you. Uh, what do you use AI for? Do you use ChatGPT or GitHub Copilot or any generative AI? What what do you use it for? Um, yeah, I use ChatGPT a lot, actually. Um, I use Copilot. I've been meaning to try out some other stuff like Cursor. Um, like basically coding assistant tools. Yeah. Uh, on our on our own Discord, we use uh, Kappa AI for documentation handling. Um, we use uh, Mendable on our search, um, and we yeah. also use DosuBot on our GitHub. Uh, and so we there are ways, and and you know like like yeah, there's some like kinks and uh, uh, like rough edges, but like you know like they're 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 good. Like they, they've objectively saved us time, right? In terms of actually yeah. like manually like going in and, and trying to like save uh, answer uh, issues or respond to questions, like those types of things. Um, I've been meaning to try out more tools. I actually use Llama Index, um, like itself, right. Uh, to, to try to like process like a, uh, a lease agreement, um, and, and to, to try to like answer questions over it. Uh, so that was fun. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to like dog fooding a bit more. For, for coding, when do you use, or why do you use Copilot versus ChatGPT or when will, would you use each? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, Copilot's just Copilot. I mean, it's just there, right? I think I think if it's just there, I'm just going to use it. Um, in yeah. fact, it's just there without actually me even needing to toggle a bar. Um, so I think that's a thing. Like, it, it just shows up and you just tap, tap complete yeah. it. I think that's actually a pretty important UX. Um, ChatGPT, I've started using it because uh, sometimes I don't find answers on, on Google. 
Um, and sometimes the question I ask is somewhat complex and I need it to like kind of basically synthesize something from like mm. disparate sources of knowledge. Uh, and it actually does a pretty good job uh, sometimes. But I, uh, what I meant is that I, on my end, I prefer to use ChatGPT for coding over Copilot, and so I just wonder oh, interesting. why. Why you? I assume you are using Copilot because of of UX, as you said, and I think that's also how AI will become more and more popular to the general public is is by integrating it like easily to use in all current applications people are using. But have you tried uh, coding or? using ChatGPT as a coding assistant and if so like why do you prefer copilot is it, is it purely for ux or also results are better or oh no i mean i, I do use ChatGPT uh to help with like kind of debugging um and i also help it yeah. to look up stuff that i forgot like for instance like a uh, uh, pydantic like uh method definition on uh, to do a certain operation i actually do that um I think the reason I use Copilot more is just like it's it's I mean it's right there like yeah. I code in VS Code and also I'm more familiar with Python so so actually I think like um, when I was trying to learn or code a little bit in TypeScript or even kind of like do some stuff with uh, Streamlit like for instance right I, I was I, I use ChatGPT a bit more to learn something new but yeah. I think for stuff I'm more familiar with it's it's more it's easier to integrate with my existing workflow. Yeah, that's a perfect answer. I I'm. I completely agree with using ChatGPT if you are learning and Copilot might might be better for productivity and for just like coding faster. That's like perfectly makes sense. Amazing. Uh, would is there anything you'd like to share or like where where can people learn more from both you or Lamandex if you if you want to share anything about the company or or yourself? Please feel free. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think. Um... Uh, I think, yeah, we covered most of the basics. Uh, the only two things I'll say is one, I think we're uh, one investing a lot more in kind of not just the advanced like rag techniques and those things um, like on the core tech side, but also a lot more on like full stack kind of AI application development. And so um, if you have suggestions, feedback, we've launched products like Freight Llama, which is like Freight React app, but for AI engineers, uh, we've launched like Chat Llama Index, uh, SEC Insights, basically full stack application demonstrations of how AI uh, UXs can be created. Um, and then the other piece I'll say is um, if you're an enterprise, like we're working at enterprise, we're always interested in seeing how you're adopting LMs in like different use cases. So we'll, we're hosting office hours basically. So DM me and we'd love to chat and learn more about your use cases, pain points, those things. Super cool. I'm I'm really excited to see all the future updates coming. And I will I, I'm also using Lama Index and we are going to use it more for a, an, an upcoming project at, at Towards AI. So super excited about that. But yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for your time, your insights. It was super cool to to dive a bit more about RAG and to to have an expert on this topic to to talk with. I, I highly appreciate you taking the time. And yeah, thanks again for this amazing discussion. Thanks for having me.